лидирует Владимир Триумф Путин. Триумф Владимира Путина ошеломляющий. Путина колоссальный отрыв от Владимир Путин кандидат. побеждает на выборах президента России при явке в 60 Because March 18th appears to have been about more than just going through the motions of securing a fourth term for Vladimir Putin. It appears to mark the end of an era in which Russia went through the tedious motions of pretending to be a democracy, managed, sovereign or otherwise, and the dawn of something else. So what happens next? Hello from our broadcast headquarters in Prague, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me on the Skype line from Moscow is co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague and author of the forthcoming book, Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. Welcome, Mark. Hey there, Brian. Hey, nice trailers. I see you're having a good time in Moscow, <laughs> shooting uh, videos of yourself in front of mafia places and talking about mafia things. We're all looking forward to that book coming out. Um, now... On election night, we had Vladimir Putin joking about remaining president until he's 100, dismissing that possibility but leaving the door open, of course. We had RT editor-in-chief Margarita Simonyon referring to Putin as the Vojd, a Russian word for leader most associated with Joseph Stalin. Earlier, he was simply our president and it was possible to replace him. Now he is our leader, she tweeted. And we had Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who is often used to launch Kremlin trial balloons, saying that this year's presidential election would be Russia's last. We, we spent 17 billion rubles on this election, Zhirinovsky said. Why bother? Instead, he said the Constitution would be amended to establish an appointed state council that would rule the country. And it doesn't require a lot of imagination to predict who would be the leader of that council. Um That proposal, the so-called Chinese variant, has been floated for a while in the Russian media, on social networks, and on certain well-informed telegram channels. I wrote about it on the blog not long ago. Mark, we've been talking about for months about whether Putin is about to become a lame duck. Um, is he instead about to become president for life? I don't think so. And I, quite frankly, I think he himself would be horrified by the thought. Um, we're not talking, I think, about a Chinese model, in, in other words, where one person just sort of stays in executive power for a long time. Um, we may well see this, this idea of, of, of a state council with, with, with some suitable sort of figurehead, um, but it would be very definitely a different kind of position. Putin does not, in my opinion, want to run the country in the same detailed manual control kind of way. He wants to have a constitutional position that will give him above all security. Again, this is a problem. You, you hollow out the institutions of a country and then you find that you can't then rely on the law to protect yourself. Um, and continued sort of prestige, the opportunity to interfere in politics when he wants to, but not the obligation to actually have to handle all the day-to-day -day management of the country. So, I mean, in some ways, I, th I think this is much more likely. This is part of Operation Successor. At the same time he'll be looking for someone to replace him, he'll be looking to create those kind of constitutional changes to give him that position. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it, it, it's something different. It's not actually that he's looking to stay in, in, in this, his current position forevermore. Now, you, it's funny. You poured water on the lame duck idea when I, when I, when I floated it. 
And now you're pouring water on the 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 president for life idea. So 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 Putin's going to be someplace in between. You're saying, yeah? Exactly. I'm I'm just naturally contrarian and just feel obliged <laughs> to disagree with you on almost any point. Not true. No, I mean I think I think what it is it's, it's exactly it's actually that I mean lame duck also sort of carries with it that implication that that, that succession means a complete change. Now I mean if it's the idea of well you know a new successor will will, will come in and Putin will be completely out in the wilderness, then obviously then at that point there is the risk of, of lame duckery. Um, on the other hand, I think this is it. I mean, I think what, what Putin is, is trying to do is to, to square that circle, is to find exactly something in between. Now, I don't think it's impossible that he will be able, that, that he can do this. Well, this is, this um, is where I want to go. <laughs> I mean, I, but I, I think the interesting thing is going to be, I mean, in, in some ways I think there's, 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 there's going to be several hurdles along the way. Creating the constitutional structure, I think, will be no problem at all. I, I think I can safely predict that anything Putin wants to send through the Duma, he can. <laughs> I think you're on thin ice. There. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, I'm really sort of pushing the boat out. But there you go. Um, finding a successor, probably possible. In some ways, the, the the hardest thing will be him psychologically making that jump. Actually, you know, having having found someone he thinks he can trust, having found a structure he thinks that can protect him, but actually entrusting it. Um, that, in some ways, I think is, is, is going to be one of the interesting things, because Putin is not, by nature, a risk taker. Mm. Um, he likes to be absolutely certain. And we've actually seen in the past, such as, for example, when he was starting his withdrawal from Syria and then changed it round, that often at crucial moments he wobbles. So it'll be interesting to see if he wobbles or manages to actually pull this one through. Mm. Now, I'm going mean, to actually I'm gonna push back a little bit because I, I think that it has to be one or the other for Putin. I don't think he can split the difference. I mean, Russia is such a place that it really matters who's got who 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 has the stamp, whose signature matters. These things these things count in Russia. This is one of the reasons why Putin did not want to opt for this not being in the office of the presidency back in 2011, 2012. Why he returned to the Kremlin in the first place, I thought at the time, because this is a country where that matters. And I don't think it's really going to be possible for him to split the difference and, and and guarantee his own security, regardless of how loyal the, the successor may appear. Let's face it, he didn't trust Medvedev, right? If you can't trust Medvedev, who can you trust, right? So I, I think we're, we, we truly are in a situation where he has to stay forever or he becomes a lame duck. I don't see the middle ground. I don't see how he finds that middle ground safely. We, well, what, I mean, you've got to say, well, what, what does a lame duck mean in this context? Um, I mean, a, a lame duck is essentially a product of, of constitutional limitations. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to it, it, I mean, it's not that I think that he didn't trust Medvedev in the sense of that he thought Medvedev would turn against him and, and that he, he would be as a, a poor, innocent victim in, in, in the ravening fangs of Dima. Um, I think it's more that he didn't trust Medvedev to basically lead the country, that he still told himself that he was the essential man. And, and there is this, this, this other challenge, which is kind of ego versus comfort, shall we say. On the one hand, you know, he, he is still convinced that he has this historic mission, it seems, and wants to carry it through. And on the other hand, though, he clearly is increasingly detached. I mean, the very fact that he sort of was such an invisible presence in the elections and just 
his uh, victory address just turned up for two minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, talking, I was talking to a journalist who was there and who missed it because he popped to the bathroom. <laughs> and he went to the bathroom and Putin wasn't there. He came out and Putin had already gone. Um, you know, this does not speak to me of, of someone who is really enjoying um, the business of, of, of being president. Now, I mean, I appreciate it, it is difficult. It is difficult in this context. But when it comes down to it, I mean, I, again... We mustn't think of Putin now as Putin, in effect, eight years ago, when he was making the decision to stand again. It's not just that Putin is older now, but the circumstances are terribly different. He may enjoy trolling the West. He may enjoy actually sort of this this, this campaign of trying to create great power status on the basis of essentially inconvenience for the rest of the world. But nonetheless... In many ways, it's been a miserable and unsuccessful term, with the obvious exception of Crimea, which is still, I think, from his point of view, that glittering diamond amid the detritus. But on on the main, whether we're talking Donbass, the economy, or just generally the general response of, of Russians, although he is cocooned, he's not really out and about, but nonetheless, I think he must have some sense that, in fact, this is not the same kind of triumph as his first two terms as president. One of the things that did really strike me about the the, the narrative of this of this event called that the Russians called an election is that before before March eighteenth the, the 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 vibe was all lame duck for leaving aside what, what you know whether we think that's the appropriate term or not. That was the vibe before March eighteenth. After March eighteenth, the vibe was president for life. Um, from Simonyon's tweets to think, th- things that are appearing in the Russian press, there was a decisive change. Now, okay, he, he, he did, quote-unquote, win a higher percentage than we expected him to. Um, the turnout was higher than we expected it to be. Um, they managed to do this, although there was falsification. Apparently, it was lower than it, hist- it has been historically. Did this election make it easier for Putin to remain if he so chose, because I, I got the impression that that's that's what that, that seems to be what the vibe was afterwards. Three points there. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the falsification point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we have this, have had the suggestion, although this falsification, um, it was less. I was hearing an interesting suggestion by someone here in Moscow who you know could have been in a good position to, to know this is you know. A lot of the assessments of falsification is based on people who, who, run, who run these algorithmic studies looking for unexp- you know, unexplained spikes, things that actually mm. step out of the norm. Um, the suggestion is because these algorithms are on the whole publicly known, that this time round, they precise, you know, the, the, the presidential technologists precisely actually, in effect, ran the algorithms backwards to reverse engineer how they could rig in such a way that it didn't necessarily flag up. <laughs> That's interesting. Such. Which would make sense. I mean, <laughs> you know, w- one thing we, we really have to remember is, is that there are a lot of smart people working in, in the engine room. Behind, right. behind this particular ship of state. So actually, I mean, although there's been a suggestion that 8 million votes... Um, may well have have, have been, been uh, padded, yeah. manufactured or transferred. And certainly it was funny how in the relatively last hours of the count, we had a, you know, a particular spike in turnout, a particular spike for Putin and a particular spike down for Grudinin. In Western now, Russia, where you'd expect exactly. it to be the worst. Yeah, precisely, which, again, is also a little bit of a, of a, of a 
warning sign. And this is after, obviously, they put a lot of resources into getting out the vote. So that's point number one, is, is actually, let's not assume that the, 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 those the, the, people who are in the know necessarily regard this as, as a massive triumph, except as a triumph in, in terms of just simply manufacture. Secondly, in terms of the narrative, um, look... Yeah, you're going to have people like Zhirinovsky and Simonyan sort of saying these kinds of But they of say things. those things for a reason. They don't just well, say they, them. Well, exactly. But I think they, they say them for a reason because exactly they're, they're, they are trying to reverse what is otherwise a trend. Because actually one still sees a lot in the press about issues of succession. It's not gone away. Yeah, you now have this counter-narrative um, from you know, people who are in effect amongst the, um, the state's trolls-in-chief whose job mm. is precisely to say eye-catching things. Mixing my and often to float things. Mm, I think less so. The, I mean, like, I think it's a long time since Zhirinovsky was using that role. I mean, Zhirinovsky is, I mean, increasingly just a, an anachronism. Um, so we come to the third thing, which is to assume that this election changed anything, I think would be a mistake. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, yes, this election could have been very different. You know, if, if it had been a 54% turnout, 53% vote for Putin. Well, then we'll be talking then, lame then, duck. Well, yeah, but also because what that would have said is not anything about the Russian population's opinions. It would have said a lot about the incapacity or unwillingness of this state to do what to it was mobilize. meant to do. No, so I mean, I, I think all, all this shows is that basically a bunch of crooks know how to stage a crooked election crookedly. Fair enough. So, I mean, I, I think it, it leaves Putin in exactly the same position as he was two weeks ago. Except with this irritating inconvenience of a ritual out of the way. Um, it is still up to him to define the way things are, are going to go. And I think in some ways some of the debate is precisely that what we are getting is in some ways a reprise of what we did see under the Medvedev presidency, which is actually different people, different wings, different factions trying to in effect influence the boss, influence the body in the direction they want. There are some people who clearly do not want Putin to go because their interests are at stake. There are others who actually would. But no one can say, Putin, it's time to go. So, I mean, I, I think we, we're going to see this, as in so many other, other other policy areas, being played out because almost there's a sense that basically the elections just occupied the bandwidth up to now. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, where do we go from here? We've got up to six years. What's next? See, I'm of the and the, I mean, my uh, my the the blog, my instant take on the election, the, the the blog post I did on election night was comparing this election to the 26th Party Communist Party Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, um, when everything you know the show went off as it's supposed to go off, but when you look behind the curtain, you saw that you know Brezhnev was, was they they couldn't broadcast all, uh, anything but ten minutes of Brezhnev's five hour speech, and that the system was basically crumbling under him. But the system was changing into something else. That this is, and I see this election in that sense, a watershed in which something else is 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 going to emerge after this. We might not see it till twenty twenty, till around or twenty 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 one, around the time of the of the state Duma elections. But I, I do get the strong sense that the the system is going to change significantly in the next couple of years. You 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 would disagree with that. No, I think we, we both agree that something is changing. I think we, we're disagreeing in, in which direction it's going and, and what, what the pressures are. I mean, I don't think this is a system that, that is crumbling in the way that late Brezhnevism 
did. No. Well, it's not yet. Um, my view is that we're not heading for president. I mean, in, in some ways, if we're heading for president for life, then, yes, of course, we are in a Brezhnevian situation. Mm-hmm. And in a way, much, I mean, it, and it will be quite Brezhnevian, not just in terms of just the, the depressing spectacle of someone slowly dying in office, in Brezhnev's case, repeatedly. <laughs> um, but also the fact that actually, in many ways, Brezhnev was trapped in that position. Yeah, he wanted to retire and in 77. Around, he wanted, he he wanted, wanted to, to retire. retire. And one of the key reasons was basically because many people around him feared Yuri Andropov, who mm-hmm. was clearly the strong candidate to, well, pretty much only candidate to replace him, and, and was clearly a very different kind of figure who was going to bring a different kind of politics. Um, there is no Andropov. I mean, at the moment, you might say you you, you have people around him who want him to stay, but he's not, obviously, Putin is rather more vigorous than Brezhnev, I think, and that's not the highest bar, I will admit. But nonetheless, you know, Putin will make his own decision. There will be people who lobby him, but Brezhnev was actually much more of a, of a trap by it. Well, he was a consensus ruler. That was the, was I mean, a, this is... He was a consensus, well, he was a consensus ruler at first. Increasingly, he was just simply a kind of a prisoner of a certain kind of cabal. But, but then, I think also there is a fact of Without there being an obvious Andropovian figure who is clearly meaning change and change that will be dangerous because he's very much kind of pushing anti-corruption as a weapon against his his enemies, um, there is, I think, much more scope for the people who want to protect their own positions to do so without Putin actually being president. Whether it's with this, you know, not only with this constitutional change, but also with that sense that Putin will actually be able to manage his own succession. The longer you leave it, the more chance there is that mortality will make that choice instead. So ironically enough, the the, the cynical pragmatists who just want to protect their own position actually have an incentive to do so while Putin is hale, and also while Putin will continue to be hale for long enough so that in some kind of of father-of-the-nation position, he can continue just to make sure that whoever they choose as his successor as president does not step away from whatever behind-the-scenes deals are struck. Yeah. I mean, I, I, think, I think this is the thing. It's almost like, I mean, I mean, okay, people can make stupid decisions. But nonetheless, actually, it, it makes a lot more sense for them to encourage Putin to negotiate succession mm-hmm. now than to wait. And yeah, I mean, we, we're going to see this d- discussion being played out in all can, different directions. And we're also going to see people speaking publicly because they want to attach themselves to one faction or another, because they want to demonstrate their loyalty, or just because their job is precisely to say things that are going to tweak us and make us think, what the hell? Right. Writing in the Washington Post today, Timothy Snyder had, I don't know if you saw it, a very interesting piece about succession in Russia and in China. Um, Succession plans project nations, Putin and Xi just threw theirs out. Um, he was making the argument that both of Putin's not effectively done what she officially did, abolish term limits altogether. Um, but he, uh, Professor Snyder's arguing that he effectively seems to be doing this. One line in the, in the piece really jumped out at me. No one in Russia can make changes for the better so long as Putin lives. No one in Russia knows what will happen when he dies. And no one in Russia can say either of these things. Uh, how, your, your reaction to that? I thought that, that just well, jumped out at I mean, me in a big way. It's a nice line, but I, I still don't see how Putin is meant to have suddenly thrown out succession plans. I mean, look, the, the thing about the electoral result is that having a long time back, fairly unrealistically, made 
the suggestion that basically 7070 was the kind of target to which they would aspire. They essentially became locked into that. And they got 7767. Well, this is it. I mean, they, you know, sort of, so they they basically hit that. But the point is they, they had to do that because if they had been getting 65-65, we would have been talking on this podcast about why they failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so, the I mean, last I, thing they want to happen. That's exactly. the greatest fear. So obviously, sort of ha- having, having incautiously floated that notion, they had to do everything they could to basically mm-hmm. achieve it. But that, as I said, I, I, I don't see what that means. I don't see how we can say that means anything. I don't see how that has changed anything. I mean, this is this is my point. It's, it's that actually the choices are yet to be made, in my opinion. Nothing has been decided of yet. Oh, I, I don't think anything has been decided of yet, but I think the trajectory seems to be moving um, in, 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 that, in what, that direction. On what basis? Data points, narrative. I mean, I, I mentioned Zhirinovsky and Simonyon's comments, but I, and I, I don't think they're that insignificant, to be honest. I don't think they're that insignificant. I don't. I don't think like surrogates and messengers of the regime say things like that just by accident. I don't. I, I don't. Oh, think it's that's not an accident, case. but we shouldn't necessarily assume that it means what it means. I mean, look, Zhirinovsky says all kinds of rubbish all the time. I mean, remember, Zhirinovsky is the guy who was talking about the point when Russian soldiers will be washing their. Yeah, boots no, I rem- But you know what? I also remember Zhirinovsky saying. I remember at an election night at the Central Electoral Commission in Moscow in March 2000, when Putin was first elected. I've told this story before. I apologize if anybody's heard it before. Chernovsky walked out to the journalist there and said, it's 30 minutes to the end of democracy and you're all on the list. And everybody laughed because it's just Chernovsky being a clown, right? Um, that turned out to be pretty prophetic in a lot of ways. Right? So, I mean, so, so I, I, I do think that he is used to kind of, he's not just a court jester. He's 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 something of a messenger that floats things that do sometimes happen. No, the, the, the yeah the the radioactive waste being blown over the Baltics and Russia's washing their feet in the in, in the Indian Ocean. No, that didn't happen. But some other things he says happen. Um, Simonyon's series of tweets, which who is a much more cautious player than Zhirinovsky, um, just reinforced that message to me again. Um, I'm just it, and now this could shift again. I mean, remember a few weeks ago I was talking about Putin the lame duck, but I do think that this is this whether he wants it to be or not, whether whatever 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 he's decided or not decided. I don't think there's a middle ground here. I don't see how he threads this needle and leaves without leaving. Right? I think he's got to he's he, he's got to keep his hands in the levers of power, or he's not going to have the security. I think he. He, he, he desires how, how would you what scenario could you see where he manages to thread this needle well i would say that what, what is exactly we, we see the creation of something like a, a state, state council, council that's looking increasingly likely with with a sort of you know, internally elected selected and so forth figure for, for putin as as its chair um do you see constitutional all, power all being kinds, shifted to that well a certain amount. I mean, all all sort of these, you know, these people would obviously be outside the law, have complete sort of, you know, immunity for life, pretty much, because he he needs to make sure that, that that he has that. Beyond that, I think what one would probably see is some sense in which actually security relationships are developed, in the sense of that the, you know, the head of the um, newly formed Ministry of State Security. Reports to the um, head of the state council. Reports to the head of the state council. You're describing a president for life scenario for me under a different name. Well, no, because the point 
is that that implies that then the rest of it is also the case. I mean, again, I think a, a key sen a key understanding of this is that not that basically the the, the 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 head of the state council runs everything. It's that basically has a certain right to, for, for example, suspend the powers of the presidency under, under emergency circumstances, subject to some other sort of guarantees or whatever. I mean, the the point is that Putin does not want, in my opinion, to be president for life. But he wants to have ultimate power. Well, again, I think he, he wants to have discretionary power, ultimate discretionary power, shall we say, which is precisely that just to do the things that interest him and not to have to touch. The I mean, things. you're describing something almost akin to the supreme leader in Iran. In a different context, of course, but something well, similar exactly. to that. I mean, which is interesting, and in the long term, you know, that means we also find interesting um, conflicts emerging between the supreme leader and the elected government. And we now, know I mean, who's won every one of those conflicts in Iran. But, um... Sure. Now, I mean, so, so I think that that is precisely the model. Now, I mean, that said. I mean, I think we agree more than we disagree because this is, I mean, this is my, when I say president for life, I don't mean that he's going to remain in the post of president of the Russian Federation under that title for life, but it means something like that you just described. Either the the Russian Ayatollah that that, that came out in the Minchenko report, that that line I keep quoting from the Minchenko report, or this state council, which I, as I noted, Jaranovsky wasn't the first to float this. This has been floating for a while. It was popping out on Telegram channels that are that are that where things were leaking on uh, late last year. So it's nothing new. This state council idea, but all these things are just different variants of the same thing. It's a, basically a way to 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 turn Putin into. If not the Russian Ayatollah, at least the Russian Deng Xiaoping. Except, of course, that, that, that you know the Ayatollah is there to maintain also a degree of, shall I say, ideological, religious. Yeah, uh, but he has ultimate political authority at the end of the day, discretionary. Yeah, I mean, I, I, but again, I mean, I, I think the, the, the thing is that I would, I would imagine that in fact Putin would would, would likely be increasing hands off um, when he's in that position. I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. And, and exactly, I mean, I think you know. We, we both acknowledge that there is clearly some kind of change happening, that actually the least likely is probably just simply a, you know, abolition of term limits and a continuation of the current system in, in, in perpetuity. That's no great... No, it's going to be something elegant. Um, it's going to be something elegant and clever. Well, it's going to be something elegant, but also it's worth mentioning that in many ways the most dangerous time for any authoritarian regime is when it tries to reform. Mm-hmm. Um, now, reform can take all kinds of, of, of different shapes. And again, if let's just kind of flip back to, to Andropov, who assembled, in a way, this, this reform coalition, which eventually propelled Gorbachev into power. Andropov was not thinking of the kind of Gorbachevian reforms. Of course not. Um, and, and, and interestingly, the, the coalition he assembled was just basically people who accepted that things could not go on the way they were. Mm -hmm. And it ranged from relatively liberal figures like Gorbachev and Shepardnadze and, and, and uh, Yakovlev, all the way through to people who are reformists, quote unquote, in the sense of hardline, we need to purge and purify. Mm -hmm. right. so, so it was a very, very sort of mixing. Um, and yet we know how well that worked out. Now, it'll be interesting to see how well Putin and the people around Putin are able to, ma to manage this transition. It's easy enough in some ways to actually try and think abroad, oh, well, this is, what, this is our wish list. This is what we would like. But to actually see how it will play out, because if you look, for example, take the, the Iranian example, um, you know, actually it, it is clearly a source of quite strong institutional weakness these divisions that, that we have between the supreme leader and, and, and the government. Um, and if, the, if it wasn't for the very, not just the political position, but the very strong kind of uh, 
cultural power of being a religious leader, mm-hmm. um, actually the supreme leader wouldn't have the same things. Now, now Putin, I mean, in so many ways, one almost, I almost want to say, kind of, let him have a look, just bite the bullet and become the czar. It would just make things <laughs> so much easier for everyone. Um, but I don't think he's, 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 he's quite there yet. Um, but I mean, I think in, in, in that context, this will be a fascinating and, let's mm-hmm. be honest, systemically dangerous yeah, no, we are, we are entering what I, I do consider to be one of the more fascinating periods of, of Putin's utterly fascinating uh, reign. Um, there's another, I mean, you touched on this just now, and it's, it's one of the points I wanted to hit on. This doesn't all happen in a vacuum. The elite is going to be reacting to Putin, not just the collective Putin in the inner circle and, and the, the Politburo, whatever you want to call it, but the broader elite is going to be reacting to what he does. And there's a lot of thing, ways this could go haywire. Um, I mean, would, would you agree with that? I mean, it's, if, if this could, there are so many ways this could go wrong. If Putin oh, decides ab- to ab- try absolutely. to... Yeah, I mean, I think this is it. Um, you know, if if he sort of pushes the wrong the wrong kind of candidate, or he makes a mistake as the kind of candidate um, he chooses to be his, or if a critical factor. mass of the elite, as you've pointed out in the past, decides he's a liability and not an asset anymore. Yeah, but I think you know, if he looks as if he's transitioning to a different position, I think for many people it will be. Um, much better they will probably think to see what happens. I mean, the point is going against Putin is likely to be dangerous. I mean, because the one thing that he does understand is how to control the security apparatus. And, you know, he has, a, you know, if you think about the, you know, the crucial people, I mean, unless sort of somehow, and I cannot imagine this, Shoigu turns against him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically between Zolotov in charge of the National Guard and um, Bortnikov in charge of the, charge FSB. Of the FSB, yeah, maybe the and Patrushev watching them sort of o- o- overall. I, you know, I, I think that, that Putin has hasn't you know a perfectly sort of goodly collection of, of, of head choppers. So I mean, I think in that context, you know, people will probably want to be more likely to wait and see. But I think it's also it's I mean, again, we we have to consider the impact of the unexpected. I mean, even though obviously. Expecting the unexpected is always a problem. Um, it, 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 it is a question of the fact that stuff is going to happen. And again, when this government, this regime, is so consumed with, shall we say, inward-looking political maneuvers, trying to work out what kind of structure it'll be, trying to work out who will be in charge, trying to work out how this, what will this will mean for everyone else, you know, will where will Sechin be without his protector and all that kind of thing? Then mm-hmm. actually, again, that, that, that might well get in the way of their capacity effectively to respond to, whether it's a sort of a sudden economic challenge or a natural disaster or whatever, you know, I don't know, a conflagration in Central Asia. There are all kinds of potential contingencies which in the next six years um, could, could arise. And again, I mean, one, one of the other sort of factors is actually this is – likely therefore and this is a way actually perversely enough I'll, I'll say we are heading lame duckwards um but what this t- means is perversely we have a, a chief executive who is not constitutionally weak but may well just be you know is impaired in his capacities to run the country effectively because so much of his attention will be given to these kind of domestic internal behind the scenes mm-hmm. calculations now, another an, another reason for this, this and for lack of a better phrase, President for Life vibe, a couple days before the election, um, Ivan Krastev, very, very insightful Kremlin watcher, had a piece in the New York Times called Welcome to the Era of Presidents for Life. 
and he was talking, he was you know, anticipating the Russian election, but also taking into consideration Xi Jinping's abolition of trade of term limits in, 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 in China, of Erdogan effectively turning himself into not leader for life, but certainly for, for a long time in Turkey. Um, and it's just, I mean, I, I don't, there, there, he makes the case that there is this kind of global trend toward this. Would, is there any, I mean, do the global factors play in here at all? I, I, I tend to think that they do a bit. Yeah, and it's uh, in some ways a useful, if sobering, reminder that uh, you know history has not ended, um, and the the global victory of, of democracy and, and, and Western values is by no means a given. Um, I think in, in some ways this is this is part of an overall global kind of crisis of, of, of old patterns of, of, of representative leadership. Um, in, it, it's it's a different manifestation of the same kind of forces that gave us Trump and Brexit and the rise of a whole variety of other populist leaders in, in, in Europe, that people are looking for simplicity within mm-hmm. their politics, simple answers, simple solutions, but also the simplicity of having just that one guy rather than having to kind of you know consider each time, should I vote and who for and, and, and everything else. That sense that we've got one, one effective guy who runs the country, and, and that's 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 where we are. We know where we are. We don't have to get get ourselves too concerned with the complexities of, of, of modern politics. So I think there is something there, but I think what's also interesting is that this re- represents an alternative form of legitimation, which is legitimation not by representation. I'm 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 the boss because you've all voted for me, or enough of you voted for me, but representation by technocratic. Um, mm. Effectiveness, because um, this has been you know, she, and the whole way that the Chinese spin and, and essentially soft power their system out into the outside world is we actually have this incredibly effective system that um, means that the best, the best rise, having been checked and you know, required to do all kinds of things. Now, okay, let's be honest, that may not be entirely accurate, but nonetheless, this is how how they they project it. Um, whereas democracy, you end up with these, you know, grinning, gurning amateurs who just because they can kiss babies and, and, and give a nice stump speech or know how to hire Cambridge Analytica, um, <laughs> get elected, um, and and basically you end up with a with, with a system run run by amateurs, um, and you know, there, there there is a certain uh, understandable legitimacy that attaches to that, and and likewise, if you look at you know someone like Erdogan, you know he sells himself on the basis of this is what I can do, this is what I deliver. Now that's all very well, but of course it actually does require you to deliver, and in comparison with say Turkey or or China, actually it's it's going to be a lot harder, and and frankly it's it's not going to get much easier. For Putin to sell himself in terms of de- delivering, and again, this is why, and I know we're going to be looking at uh, foreign, foreign affairs, affairs. In, in the second part, but this is why, actually, in contrast, whereas other one-man rulers have, in, uh, in the main, been concentrating on their domestic agendas, with a little dig at the outside world and why it doesn't understand us, Putin, in some, in many ways, these days, is actually focusing on his external agenda mm-hmm. because he's not got much else to offer. Yeah, no, Republic Rue, I don't know if you saw it, had a good piece today looking ahead at the, the economics of Putin's fourth term, and they, mm. ain't, they ain't pretty. Um, also, on, I mean, you made the point about the Chinese model. I, want, I mean, I, Timothy Snyder makes this piece in his, in his op-ed in the Washington Post today. It's been, it's been made before as well. I would put that in the past tense. China had 
I think the only model that the only author, authoritarian model that can challenge liberal democracy in terms of effectiveness because it basically was based on institutions and at the center of that was term limits. At the center of that was Chinese leaders were in for 10 years and they're out. This allowed for elite rotations. It prevented the, the it didn't prevent the formation of clans, but it prevented one clan from dominating and, and stagnating the country. They just threw that out the window. And if this carries through the way I think it's going to carry through, she's just going to be another strongman. Um, and I think the, the, the attractiveness of the Chinese model is going to erode with that. I think I think they did have a model, but I don't think they I don't think they have one anymore. If the, if this turns out to be the case, um, go ahead. I, I know you yeah, I, I knew say, you'd I mean, want to I, respond to that before no, we go to no, foreign I mean, affairs. Actually, on, on, on that, I, I I would agree. But again, I think it, it's something that's not going to happen immediately. It's not as if I mean people are immediately going to say, "God, this is a ridiculous model now," um, because again, the, the way they present it is almost like, "Well." She is just so damn amazing that, that, that why on earth, you know, it, it will be foolish, just downright foolish for us not, not to keep them as long as possible. Well, we'll have to wait and see how much mileage that particular idea has, um, because in, in some ways that actually is the Putin Mm-hmm. That's um, the Putin Russia. argument. And this is what I mean. Yeah. She just turned himself into a, just another Putin. He just Putinized his system when he had a system, in my opinion, that was far. I think liberal democracy is far superior to both. But I think he had a system that was far superior to Putin's system. And that was so, and so it, this is interesting. So in, in some ways, finally, the Russians have got their soft power um, sort of uh, angle over Russia. Over, over the, China. Over China. Well, I mean, well, basically, China just brought themselves potentially down to where Russia is. I guess that that would be that would be Which the way. Yes, unfortunately, yeah. of today's Russian soft power. All right, time to shift to foreign affairs. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and shift gears to foreign affairs, like I just said, and take a look at some of the early signals. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me on the Skype line from Moscow is co-host Mark Eliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International relations in Prague and author of the book Vody, Russia's Super Mafia. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes. You can read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at rfrl.org and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Никто не собирается разгонять какую-то гонку вооружений. войска вновь начали A day after the election, Vladimir Putin said he didn't want an arms race with the West and would seek to resolve all issues diplomatically. A day after the election, Russia also launched large-scale military exercises in the southern military district, including in occupied Crimea, Abkhazia, and South Ossetia. A day after the election, Margarita Simonyon tweeted the following, We don't want to live like you anymore, toward the West. For 50 years, secretly and clearly, we, we wanted to live like you, and we no longer want this. We don't respect you anymore, and, and, and we don't respect everyone you support. Mark, what do I'm just throwing a few things out there. Uh, what do the early signals suggest? A more belligerent Russia, a less belligerent Russia, more of the same. Yeah, it's much less exciting to say more of the same, but in some ways I'm <laughs> saying more of the same. No, I think the thing is what what we have seen is the characteristic bipolarity of Russian foreign policy. But on the one hand, you know, we have the continuing fallout from the Skripal attempted assassination. And mm. hopefully just simply remains attempted assassination, um, which has led not us to a 
an escalating tit for tat and it'll be interesting to see now that we have european countries saying they too will, will expel spies um though little little sort of sidebar point it's funny how you have to wait until they've tried to commit an assassination somewhere to actually expel spies i, I wouldn't have thought you really needed an excuse <laughs> um but and and in response to that we then had this spectacle of the russian foreign ministry here in moscow having an event in which they sort of summon representatives from the embassies and I know that from talking to some some of the diplomats who who went, there was a certain expectation that this might be an attempt to pour a bit of oil on troubled waters. Mm-hmm. Well, if that was the case, they then proceeded to drop a match into said oil, um, because it was basically a sort of two-hour fest of bile and spleen, mm-hmm. um, in which they they didn't even attempt to, to, to seize any high moral high ground. Um, so on, on on the one hand, you know, you 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 have the snarling face. And on the other hand, you know, you do have attempts to to try and calm things down in some ways. They talk about uh, not wanting an arms race or a Cold War, suggestions that they can help broker a deal with North Korea, offering Vladivostok um, as a venue, that kind of thing. And I think in order to explain it, in some ways, I mean, again, I mean, Simon Yan, she, she channels the zeitgeist of certain government circles, I think, very effectively. And I was thinking of, do you remember, you know, a couple of years back, I think it was, there was this video that came out, Yaruski Okupant, I'm mm, a Russian yes. occupier, yes. which was very, very slickly produced. Um, and more or less said, you know, you want to call me an occupier? Well, yeah, we are We are a nation of occupiers. We, you know, we, we occupy the Baltic states and Central Asia and so forth and Ukraine. And essentially, we civilized them, we built them up, and they turned against us or whatever. And, I mean, what for me was absolutely fascinating was this attempt to basically appropriate the criticism Mm -hmm. from abroad, to actually say, you want to attack us as such? And instead of just simply saying no, we are going to take that and make it into a mark of pride. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think this this is the issue that we actually have a, a, a kind of a, a continuing dispute within Russian foreign policy between a, a, a traditionalist model, which is divide and rule. Sometimes you, you know, in some circumstances you are aggressive and pushy, but at other times you are a little bit more emolument to try and basically make sure that you, you don't alienate everyone all the time. And then the other one, you know, again, which is very much sort of, shaped, I think, by, by this notion that I've been playing with of dark power, of actually accepting that you're not going to make any friends, really. So instead, you want to be a formidable um, antagonist. So that, that way you, you, you intimidate others mm-hmm. and you make them sort of want to deal with you just to get you off their backs. I think increasingly, I, I think that we are seeing that come to dominate. Now, because the kind of the, the, the inertia within the system, you know, diplomats will be diplomatic at least some of the time. And so there are still attempts to, 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 to try and make, make overtures. There is a wariness about the United States, a continued incapacity to predict what Trump could do in response to various things. But more generally, I think what we're seeing is, is a slight shift, nothing dramatic, not so much towards belligerence in the sense of actually picking real fights, mm-hmm. but belligerence in terms of like one of these small, vicious rodents that shows its fangs and puffs itself out to look as, as impressive and fearsome as possible. Well, I think that is in some ways what we can expect from, from Putin's Russia in the immediate future. A lot of bearing of fangs, a lot of puffing itself up, even if in fact it is 
a vicious rodent. Yeah, no, I, I did, I, I'm sure you saw Vladimir Frolov's piece in Republic.ru this week looking ahead to Putin's foreign policy, and he he makes a, a convincing argument that basically Putin, in, in, in one sense, Putin's foreign policy did make Russia kind of feel like a great power again. It made the West take notice of it. But yet, if you look at the particulars, with the exception of Crimea, of course, Donbass, even Syria, they're not really achieving what they what what, what they the substance of being a great power, if you will. Um, and again, he I, I think he he didn't say it, but it it, it 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 the vibe of the whole piece was more of the same is what we could expect. There really isn't any any other place it can go right now, right? Russia's not going to back down. The West isn't going to give Russia what it wants because it, it's it's impossible to, to 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 give it to the West. So we're kind of stuck in this in this in this this groove. I I would think. Yeah, I agree. I I, I mean, I think I, I would. Although on the whole, I mean, for all, as ever, it has an excellent analysis. I mean, I think I, the only thing I would say is actually Syria. I think Syria, in fairness has been successful. I mean, there are long-term risks associated with that, but it's a relatively cheap deployment. It it, it has done what they needed it to do. It has asserted that, in fact, Russia is a power projection nation. Um, And from from the military point of view, that it has all kinds of excellent value in terms of training a whole new generation of officers and testing out weaponry and, and such like. But no, but in, in broad terms, absolutely. But, but it's easier it's to so get much... into the Middle East than get out, as, as we, we, we know quite well. Yeah, and, 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 and indeed Britain itself has, has a certain sort of track record there too. No, I mean, exactly. And, and I think this, this is, the, for me, the thing is, it's all very well to look at the past. And in fact, in many ways, Russia has been effective in, in punching way above its weight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it is this sort of scrappy um, under underdog, again under rodent. I'll stick to that. Um, that, that. That you know ha, has precisely by 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 being challenging, by breaking the rules, by catching people by surprise, as in as in Syria and so forth. You know, managed to assert for itself a global role that is substantially out of keeping with many of its objective strengths. But yeah, this is this is the issue. Okay, well now where there are no more Crimeas. There is, in my opinion, no prospect or expectation of any kind of territorial ambition or, or, or desire for it, especially not within sort of NATO countries. There is scope for, I mean, I think we're going to see much more um, adventurism in the Balkans. The Balkans, I agree. But again, that's... purely from the point of view of just that, that's part of kind of NATO and above all the EU soft underbelly. So it's a good, it's a good place. Well, I'd watch, watch Bosnia-Herzegovina very closely. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, there, there, there's scope for more action, but it's a classic thing. Action does not always mean success or more to the point, it doesn't necessarily mean progress. It's hard to see where Russia goes on on any of the indices in terms of, of, of economic projection of its power. Um, it may well be able to help nudge a few more cracks open within Europe. We'll have to wait and see, for example, what happens with Greece. We'll have to wait and see what happens, and pains me to say it, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, e- even if actually they, they, they manage to, to exacerbate poor relations there, it might lead to some short-term sense of satisfaction in Moscow, but it's not going to lead to any real advance. There, there is a limit to how far you can build great power status on the basis of inconvenience and unpredictability. And so, no, I mean, I, I, I think the, the problem is this is not a, a long-term strategy, but 
I do not see Putin as able or willing to contemplate anything different. I don't see him being willing to be truly aggressive, you know, and say, okay, well, we're going to deploy military force more broadly or whatever. They're pretty much at full stretch, in my opinion. Mm. But nor do I think Putin has it within him to decide to be the peacemaker, to decide to change the basis. Even though in Machiavellian terms, it would probably be a tremendously effective policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and this, this segue is... This segues to where I want to go. I mean, there, I, I talked about this in the Daily Vertical this week. There's, there's, there's still a lot of hope, I think misguided hope, in, in Western capitals right now that there can be some kind of thaw, detente, reset, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, 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 I noted uh, Jean-Claude Juncker's letter of congratulations where he talked about that our main common goal should be the creation of a pan-European security system, a new pan-European security system, almost echoing the words that that that, that Russia uses. Um, just an unfortunate choice of words from the European Commission president, or what, what, do you, what do you see going on here? Yeah, I mean, on normal circumstances, in normal conditions, I'm, I'm delighted to put the boot into Juncker. <laughs> um, on this point, um, I mean, I think in, in, in some ways we have to accept that there is a certain etiquette in international relations that, you know, however much with, with gritted teeth, you basically congratulate right, people but... on, on voting, on, on being elected. And I think the intent was, and it was being over subtle, was by saying, you know, a common goal ought to be is trying to hint that, in fact, because obviously what, what is the main threat at the moment to pan-European security? It is Russian adventurism and interference. Yes, but it's been Russia that. that's been calling for precisely that, right? Yeah, of, exactly. No, I mean, again, I think... What these are, words are, mean um, in Moscow are spheres of influence. Up, we are very much bumping up to the limits of my kind of capacity to, to argue, to protect um, Juncker's position. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, yes, I mean, I think it was very unfortunate. It, it was... At the the best one could say it w- is that it was badly framed without a, a clear sense of how this is going to be read and a more to the point how it's then going to be transmitted within Russia. Because, again, if one reads, looks at how the Russian press... They loved it. This, exactly. In, instead of actually thinking, oh, is this some deeply subtle uh, Eurocrats rebuke, they, of course, didn't read or present it as that. It's, it's actually a further sign that the, the world is rejoicing that, that, that Putin is, is still in the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, but, but look, this, this, is, this is trivial. This does not actually um, mean anything one way or the other. The interesting thing for me, if we're talking about Juncker and, and the role of the European Union in this case, is that now we, we are having a series of European countries talking about their willingness to provide real moves in support of the UK in the post-Skripal um, sort of era. But it's that. It's an alliance of the willing. Mm-hmm. It is not the European Union. And I think one of the things that, 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 that this shows is that almost I – mean, I'm not saying, oh, well, the European Union is, is useless or dead or anything like that. But nonetheless, I think from, from, from the Russians' point of view, having – try to undermine the European Union, which they undoubtedly have, and, and frankly, having time and time again demonstrated massive contempt for the European Union, which they don't really believe exists. Right. Um, well, one of the byproducts of that, actually, I think, has been to allow European Union countries, individual Union, European countries, to feel more comfortable with actually doing things unilaterally. Mm-hmm. 
rather than thinking they have to work through Brussels. Which again, I mean, in this respect, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it, but in this respect, I do think it, it presents a nice little microcosm of how the Russians themselves are going to have to get used to dealing with these unfortunate, unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. What they probably think at the time is a cunning plan, and may even at the time seem to work out. But in practice, by making Russia more and more of, alas, a pariah state, mm-hmm. actually creates more and more problems for Putin in the long term. I can't help but uh, mention, without any judgment attached to this, just an observation. I, I found it very interesting to see Britain asking and to a degree receiving support from the European Union in the time of Brexit as these negotiations are going on. It's, it's just an interesting dynamic to watch. Um, I, I, nothing, I, don't, I, I have nothing else to say about that. And did, I couldn't possibly comment. You can. I, I, you could possibly. Let's bring it around full circle. Um, we started with domestic politics. We talked about foreign affairs a little bit. You made a comment in the first half about how basically that Putin is going to look to foreign affairs more because domestically he'll be constrained, if I remember correctly. How much does this, but I'm going to flip that on its head. How much does the fact that the Russian political system is going to be consumed with this issue of succession, not succession, whatever new configuration happens next, how did, how, to what extent does that constrain their foreign policy ambitions? That's going to be a hard one. Um, the honest answer is I don't know. Mm. My suspicion is that it probably won't because so many of these operations are essentially self-propelled. Mm-hmm. They are opportunists. They are, they are low-level and small-scale. You know, the, the Skripals and the Montenegrin coups of this world are, thank God, the exceptions. But the Syrians the the in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Ukraines are not. These are well, no, um, that... no. I mean, they, they are. In the sense of, I mean, those those are examples of things which are clearly, you know, absolutely run 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 from above and require the full um, mobilization of the state. Yeah. Yeah, and and above all, they they need to be signed off by the boss. Most of the things that happen do not. Most of the things that happen exactly are are much much sort of more sort of almost like the the they are the machine operating on autopilot, and lots of individuals coming up with stuff. That I, I think is going to continue I, because again, I mean, I th- I don't see a fairly distracted state as really having the capacity to rein it all in. Mm-hmm. And more to the point, I don't see Putin as having the, the will or the interest in doing so, um, you know, whether it's because he's badly informed or whether it's because he has a game plan that is far more subtle than anything I can see. But one way or the other, you know, he, he clearly does not at the moment see the situation in the same terms. He does not see the same downward trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or, or the long-term risks, shall we say, of, of, of this particular strategy. So I, I think this will basically continue. But I do think two things. One is it will be a bit more parsimonious, that, that they will be looking to focus their resources. I think that one thing they have realized, and this doesn't relate to the election or anything like that, but I think it's just generally learning lessons of their first few years of this campaign, is actually that they have to be a little bit more focused on areas where they really have room for maneuver and chance to actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. Secondly, though, I don't think we're going to see these big set-piece adventures. I mean, in part, okay, because I don't think there are many opportunities for, for that. But even if something arose, I think actually this is, a, you know, this is probably not going to be a government that will be looking for, I don't know, a major military deployment in Central Asia or some other sort of really you know, big campaign that will require long-term political effort. Mm. So uh, 
meet the new Putin, same as the old Putin, is what it sounds like to me. Except, yeah, I mean, yes, but precisely increasingly distracted. And what that will mean is in some ways that therefore the machine will be running on autopilot. And let's be honest, if you are an official in, in Putin's Russia, the main skill that you are meant to have is the capacity to read Putin's mind. <laughs> You don't wait for instructions. You try and predict what those instructions would be if Putin were talking to you. And the problem is that a lot of people aren't very good at that, and a lot of people are guessing. So it tends to mean this kind of great fissiparious approach. That in fact, you, know, you, you have so many different things in so many different directions. So I think actually it'll be similar, but my suspicion is that it'll be slightly more vicious but slightly more low, smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Fewer sharks, more piranhas. Mm. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me on the Skype line from Moscow has been co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague and author of the book Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. Thanks for an enlightening discussion, Mark. Always a pleasure. I'd also like to thank our brilliant, patient, and ridiculous overworked producer, Tanya Koncheva, and my indispensable colleague, Pavel Butorin, managing editor of RFRL's Russian language television program, Current Time, which you can watch at www.currenttime.tv. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, you can read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical, and you can follow us on the Twitter, at Power Vertical. And now, as always, I leave you with the ambient sounds of my favorite socially conscious Russian rapper, Noise MC. Noise MC.